So tonight I'd like to talk about uh, the work we're doing here during the next eight days and you know, walking this path of awareness, which is uh, so profoundly transformative. From what I can see after all these years of practice, it's, it's an endless process of learning and discovery. And what we discover you know, through our work, you know, through our earnest effort, is um, some very important things. Uh, what we, everything that we learn has something to do uh, with understanding the, the nature of suffering and the nature of liberation. That's what this practice is, is focused on. That's what this practice is oriented towards. I mean, there are so many other things to study. I mean, there are so many other fields to practice and, and learn about. But that's what Vipassana, you know, that's what the Buddha's teachings uh, are interested in, you know, is you know, how to discover, how to understand the nature of our suffering and also the nature of liberation from that suffering. And of course, what we want to point out is that it has everything to do with learning how to be in the present. You know, this process of discovery and learning has everything to do with learning to rest the attention, you know, to, to meet the here and now, uh, free of any preconceptions. You know, this process of discovery, of insight, it's facilitated by cultivating an attitude, an attitude that's free of any attachment to a particular agenda. You know, when we attach to a particular agenda, it blocks that, that flow, that process of discovery, that process of learning. You know, we're making assumptions. We're clinging on to some model or some idea about how things are supposed to be unfolding. And it gets in the way. It trips us up on the path makes the path much more difficult than it need be. Another thing in terms of walking the, this path of awareness, something we all need to discover for ourselves, um, is what wise effort is. You know, what kind of effort is wise in terms of learning to wake up? learning to understand you know, what the nature of suffering is, what, what is liberation. And the kind of effort that we want to make, it's unusual. You know, it's a different kind of effort that, uh, than a lot of other pursuits. And the kind of effort that we want to extend is not an effort about becoming, you know, clinging to some idea. You know, it could be being a good yogi, you know, could be clinging to all sorts of models or concepts. Um, but rather, it, it's a very gentle, patient perseverance to over and over again open to the here and now. Over and over again move into a relationship to the here and now. You know, that's free of bias, that's free of ideas about how things are supposed to be. And instead, it's with that intention to just simply learn, with that intention to discover. If we can practice with that intention and that attitude, practice unfolds uh, with so much greater ease. 
It's when we cling to a particular idea. That's what creates a lot of the suffering in our practice. So as we walk this path, we're cultivating many qualities of mind. You know, certainly you can see that just in the first two days here. One of the qualities of mind that we're, dis- we're cultivating is patience. Another one is perseverance. You know, another one is wise intention. You know, making that intention to be present you know, rather than indulging in fantasy. But making that choice to keep coming back to the here and now. That's wise intention. We're also cultivating metta, loving kindness. Cultivating a heart that can experience and develop and strengthen that innate capacity for unconditional love and acceptance. And the key quality that we're cultivating, and we talk a great deal about this because it's so crucial in this process of discovery, in this process of you know, discovering other ways of relating to the conditions that we encounter. That's, of course, the quality of mindfulness. And why mindfulness is so crucial in this path of insight is because it is free of preconceptions. That's its characteristic. It's free of preconceptions. It's, It's very much unlike thought or thinking, which is often deeply conditioned to experience things uh, in a preconceived way, you know, through our bias or through our conditioning. Mindfulness is it's an innate quality that's within all of us. We don't have to come to a meditation center to find it. But meditation centers can help nurture that innate quality. And what's so beautiful about mindfulness is that it's completely open-hearted. It's completely open-hearted. We have that capacity within ourselves to meet the here and now with this open-hearted attention that's free of the imposing of shoulds and the imposing of shouldn'ts on our experience in the present. But it simply allows us to receive or open or experience fully what's happening. It allows us to develop an intimacy you know, with our bodies, with our minds, and with our environment. You know, mindfulness is, isn't, has nothing to do with distancing or detaching, but it's about becoming more intimate, close, but close and open and receptive, not close in the sense of being lost in, which is what we often associate closeness with. You know? It's direct seeing, very fully, very clearly, And so this mindfulness, it facilitates this process of discovery. It allows us to see things differently. It allows us to learn, to see for ourselves what the nature of happiness is. What is happiness? What is happiness? It's a good question. Does it last? Is it possible to discover lasting peace. The Buddha described the highest form of happiness is peace. Peace. Unconditional peace. 
mindfulness, when we develop that capacity, that inner strength of mind. What's beautiful about it also is the fact that it's not fragmented. We can bring mindfulness into any situation that we find ourselves in. It's not restricted to the meditation hall or the walking practice. But we can bring mindfulness into any activity. And in fact, there are many stories in the Buddhist tradition of people having very profound awakening, very profound enlightenment, deep insights in some of the most ordinary activities of life. And sometimes in the most difficult, under the most difficult conditions. Sometimes we, in this culture, we're pretty obsessed in some ways with the conditions that we find ourselves in. And a lot of that is this feeling like if the conditions aren't just right, there's no way we're going to be happy. There's no way we're going to be content. And as Narayan mentioned last night, it's not about becoming indifferent to conditions. We need to apply wisdom, discernment to conditions. But it's also important to realize the limitation and the vulnerability of our happiness if it depends on a a particular set of conditions coming together. So deep insights. We can learn a great deal about ourselves washing the dishes, brushing our teeth, taking a shower, walking down the street, reading a newspaper, even watching TV. It's possible, really, it's possible to learn and to look and to discover in any activity that we engage in. That's the beauty of mindfulness. And so as we cultivate mindfulness and a more spacious attitude, what happens to the mind is it begins to change. It begins to develop this capacity to inquire or to investigate, to explore more freely. You know, it, it's free of the agenda, you know, something that we've been working with. You know, it doesn't, things don't have to be a certain way, so we're taking a look in a very fresh way, which is mindfulness, that fresh attention. So with that attitude, coupled with mindfulness, free of any preconceptions at all, then we can begin to explore We can go below the surface of what we're used to living on and begin to explore this body-mind process and make discoveries and begin to understand what's happening there. What's the state of things? So after spending the day in our groups today, um, we're getting a sense of what the state of things is. And the state of things... Um, oftentimes in the first couple of days of a retreat can be a little bit disconcerting. The kind of discovery, especially if you're new to the practice and especially if this is your first retreat, it can be quite shocking actually when one sits down. One can have a daily practice of sitting for 20, 30, or 40 minutes a day and you, know, you think you're a pretty good practitioner. And that is quite an accomplishment, actually, to be able to sit on a regular basis. Uh, But these kind of retreats are a little bit different. You might have noticed that. They're a little bit different. Um, 
they ask a lot more of us. And what they're, of course, what they're asking of us is, uh, you know, to be with ourselves. That's essentially what the conditions are designed to do, uh, is to support this, this um, inquiry, this ability to, to be with your own experience so that you can take a look and to try to take a look in a fresh way at just what's happening. In other words, Vipassana means to see things as they are, and that's what we're engaged in. You know, and we're using the mindfulness practice to, to facilitate that, to do that. And so what are some of the kind of disconcerting discoveries that we can make? We'll start with the kind of the bad news first, um, because it's really just the beginning of the process. Well, one thing we begin to wake up to um, as we begin to pay attention in a more sustained way through mindfulness is that we wake up to how discontented the mind is. You know, the mind is actually not particularly happy uh, a lot of the time. Uh, when it's sitting there, it's not just resting in bliss from one moment to the next, is it? <laughs> Anybody resting in bliss from every moment since they arrived to right now? Yeah, hands? No. Now, what we discover is that the mind, that monkey mind, torments us. Um, the kinds of things that we discover in the body, for instance. You know, it's very common for people that have done a lot of body work, you know, like a lot of yoga, you know, a lot of different healing practices, and they come to a retreat. And for many of those folks, um, it, it's quite surprising to discover how much body tension there is. And sometimes you know, people will think, well, it's because I'm sitting so much. But, you know, that may be partly true, but I also am quite suspect that um, it's that we're also going deeper. You know, we're going deeper into the body. Uh, this is a very powerful practice that we're engaged in. You know, it may not feel that way right now, but it is. You know, it's a very powerful practice. It really has a tremendous um, transformative uh, power. Um, it allows us to go very deeply into this body-mind process. And, and what we often do discover is just how much tension there is in the body. And oftentimes, we don't accept that very easily. You know, we struggle with that. Um, you know, we, we're, we're given suggestions to sit in chairs or alternate. And some of us listen to that. Some of us don't. And whether you do or don't, it's fine. Um, but sometimes, it almost doesn't matter you know, which position you're sitting in. It can be that way. I remember many retreats where I, sometimes I felt like I spent the whole retreat trying to be comfortable uh, and, you know, just never could quite get there. Um, tried lots of different strategies, uh, you know, endless strategies, uh, and still there was a certain kind of tension. And pretty soon I, I got a little bit of insight uh, and realized that some of what I needed to do was look at how I was relating to that pain. You know, instead of focusing exclusively on trying to be comfortable, I needed to take a look at the fear or the anger or the aversion or the self-judgment uh, that I had in relationship to that physical pain. And that was very insightful. That's a, that's a good thing to do, and I'll get to more of that approach in a few minutes. Um, other discoveries that we make that I think sometimes can be kind of discouraging, you know, the, the, the repetition of thoughts. Uh, that we discover when we begin to become more mindful of, of the mind. Um, you know, sometimes we have this self-image that, you know, we're very accomplished in certain things, uh, we're good at tasks, 
Uh, we're very clever. We can multitask. We can um, you know, make money and with using our brains. And we come into a retreat and we think we're pretty creative, pretty, pretty smart, and pretty bright. And then we sit down and we start watching our thoughts. And they become very mundane very quickly. Uh, and they become very repetitive. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, it's just how repetitive the same thoughts can be over and over. Like the thoughts about lunch. You know, they start at a certain time in the day. They go. They follow a certain cycle. Then finally that highlight of the day arrives. Uh, and then maybe you're disappointed. Uh, maybe you're really ecstatic. And then you're eating and you're enjoying it. And then you're thinking, mm, lunch is 24 hours away. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to try to enjoy it in the here and now. And so you keep being present. And then very quickly lunch is over. And then what's next, right? It's a, another walk. Uh, outside, uh, you know, uh, uh, you got you to wash your dishes, of course, which is waiting in line and, and before you're free. Um, and then, you know, you got to brush your teeth. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can take care of, um, but they're not that exciting. That's the point. It's not that exciting. Um, I wonder about folks that come and sit for three months whether their relationship to lunch changes. Uh, I have a feeling it does, actually. They, uh, one probably develops a little more equanimity uh, around lunch after 90 days of sitting, uh, having lunch every day at 12 or 12.30. So repetitive thoughts, mm, they, they certainly can happen. Uh, and then the, the inability to just simply pay attention. Right. Just that, that fact. Uh, no matter what your aspirations are, no matter what, whether you're a really good person, uh, you know, it, sometimes it really doesn't matter. Um, we, when we sit down, the mind has a really hard time settling. And you know, the instructions actually, in many ways, they could not be simpler. You know, it's not fancy mantras or visualizations or memorization or deep study. It's, you know, pay attention to your breath, pay attention to the body, or pay attention to sounds. I mean, it's pretty simple, pretty basic. But the mind doesn't want to do that. It has a difficult time resting there. And that's, of course, because of the power of repetitive thinking, of habitual thinking. Then there's habitual reactions that we discover as we begin to wake up. You know, this kind of endless... Uh, reactions to the body. I described the kind of the, the reactions to pain, whether it's fear or anger, um, or kind of gritting your teeth, whatever that reaction might be. Uh, there's uh, reactions to all sorts of mind states. You know, when the mind is restless or bored or can't pay attention, uh, so often we judge ourselves. You know, we react to the state of the mind with a lot of self-judgment. Um, that's so common. Uh, we very, especially in our culture. Uh, you know, where there's such a model of success and failure, uh, we think we're failing if the mind is wandering. And so that, of course, creates the conditions for a lot of criticism. Also, another predominant habit of mind that yogis can get into um, is this comparing and evaluating, you know, kind of comparing yourself to your neighbor or, uh, you know, comparing or, or evaluating each sitting that you have. You know, that's very common. Like, I had a really good sitting at 8.15, but a really lousy sitting at 10.45. And then I had a really nice sitting when the energy was good around 6.15. 
But boy, the energy dropped at 8, 8.45, and it was a really lousy sitting, and just no good. And so there's a lot of that evaluating, you know, kind of evaluating the mind and evaluating our, our performance. And it's deeply conditioned to do that, and, and we live in a competitive culture. So that habit of mind is something that we need to learn how to work with, you know, soften around, begin to work with that tendency to get lost in desires and fantasies, um, the tendency to get uh, caught up in the planning mind. That's a really big one, right? Planning mind, this preoccupation with what's coming next. And you can see how absurd that is on retreat, uh, because what's next actually isn't that much better than what's <laughs> happening now. But we still are planning that out. Uh, so. You know, you can see the habitual nature. That's, the, that's what's great about retreats, is you can see these habits coming to the surface. Uh, and we can begin to question them a little bit. Um, kind of in our everyday world, it's, it's easy to construct really wonderful plans and really get behind them and think that really going to happen. And that can make us happy or feel safer or feel more secure. Uh, but on retreat, we, can, we get the sense of planning as being just, it arises under certain conditions, and it's pretty empty in a way. Um, we can see. That ch the changing nature of planning, uh, the kind of the resistance and the rebellion that the mind can go into around the structure of the retreat, or the form, or um, the worries, the anxieties. Lots and lots of habits. I could go on probably for a couple hours about that, but we're going to move along. So that discovery of just how difficult the mind is, and its inability to discover inner contentment, you know, its inability to actually find a place of peace and rest, you know, is an insight. Okay. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It means that that's the state of the conditioned mind. Okay. That's what we bring in you know, to, the, to this situation. And what we're doing is simply waking up to it. It's not the conditions that are causing that. You know, it's not the retreat. It's that the retreat is creating the conditions so that we can actually begin to see this stuff in a very direct, naked way. Many ways, we're exposing you know, uh, the deepest parts of ourself in an environment like this because we're actually paying attention. You know, we're making an effort, anyways, to pay attention. So it's important when we begin to wake up to this process of discontent in the mind to realize not to get discouraged, not to allow that to overwhelm you, not to feel like there's something wrong, but to realize that this is really the first step on the path of awareness, is beginning to see the state of things as we enter into this path of awareness. And it's a necessary step. You know, we can't bypass that. You know, we can't, we're not going to discover liberation until we get to know non-liberation. It's a process of self-discovery, of getting to know oneself. But what we learn on this path is how to transform our relationship to what we encounter. We learn to transform our relationship. You know, and the fact is that 
even for many experienced yogis, when they first come on retreat, there's that sleepiness sometimes, sometimes a lot. Uh, there's that restlessness and agitation and lots of, you know, fantasies and planning going on and lots of thoughts. It's not like they just drop away right away. Um, but what there is more of, and it's because one has been practicing and looking at one's experience, uh, what there is more of is equanimity and greater relaxation and more space around that process. You know, more space around that particular process. In other words, more wisdom, less identification, less feeling of separateness because of being lost or caught in that process. And in that shift in relationship to what we encounter, that's where transformation occurs. You know, that's where freedom occurs because we don't develop a capacity to totally control the phenomena that we encounter. You know, no matter how enlightened we become, the body is still going to do its thing. Uh, I don't know, maybe if somebody's fully enlightened, mental states don't even arise. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I wouldn't be familiar with that. Um, But, you know, mental states arise and sometimes challenging mental states arise no matter how long you've been practicing, it seems. Um, But one's relationship to it doesn't generate or create a lot of suffering. And so what we begin to discover, and it's not just the bad news, but we begin to discover the path to freedom. The path to freedom. Liberation. one significant aspect of letting go of suffering or seeing into the nature of suffering and liberation is to begin to explore and understand um, in very deep ways what our relationship to pleasure and pain is. So much of what binds us and what creates discontent in the mind uh, kind of enslaves us you know to the changing conditions in life, or leaves us vulnerable to the uh, facts of life, to the the fact that life is continually changing, that the conditions that we encounter, body, mind, or environment, are continually changing. Uh, And what, um, and that doesn't, you know, the fact that things are changing all the time doesn't mean that one has to suffer. But one has to understand one's nature to the pleasant experiences that one encounters, and, and also, Um, the painful experiences. The Buddha described this path um, it's kind of, it's like, it's swimming upstream. It's a different analogy, but you get the idea. It's swimming kind of against the currents. Because the currents, the the current current flow, of course, what he's pointing to is is our conditioning. In some ways, it's easier. The mind wants to go in the direction, quite often, of its conditioning. Because the mind thinks that 
Um, that's where comfort and happiness rests. And it's natural for us to think that because that's what our education has told us. That's the kind of experiences that we've had. That's the kind of guidance that we've uh, received over the course of our life, which is um, just this very fundamental message. Um, It may seem very basic, but it often underlies so much of what we learn about the nature of happiness. And for many people, the understanding of happiness is that one wants to experience as much pleasure as possible. Um, you know, one wants to extend that experience of pleasure and experience all the different, you know, as, as frequently as we can and, and, and as strong as we can. Uh, we want a steady stream of pleasure. And, and, and a lot of folks will think, you know, pleasant house, pleasant car, pleasant relationship, pleasant taste, pleasant sounds. You know, there's a lot of conditioning around what the Buddha described as delusion or ignorance in that we invest our happiness in the experience of pleasure. It's very, very subtle, this investment. It may sound strange because perhaps we've been walking this path of awareness already and we're beginning to see um, the flaw in that thinking. Uh, It's more transparent than what maybe what I'm laying out in some ways. But as you walk the path, we can begin to discover more subtle layers of that conditioning. You know, sometimes it might be a pleasant state of mind that we have, like a moment of peace or uh, um, feelings of contentment and joy, and the mind attaches to it. You know? and, and why it's attaching to it is because it's pleasant, and we want it to last. Um, that's a more subtle you know, form of pleasure than you know, knocking somebody over to rob a bank. Okay, that's greed in a very crude way. But as, as we become yogis, we discover you know, more subtle reactions or responses to pleasure. It's not always so clear that we're clinging on to pleasure, even though we may be, and that we often are. It's the flip side with pain. The conditioning or the flow downriver, the conditioning is that to avoid pain. You know, it seems like it makes sense. You know, if there's a painful situation or a painful condition, try to get out of it. You know, don't, don't, don't deal with it. Um, avoid it. Uh, push it away if it's a painful emotion. Learn to control or manage it. Uh, if it's a painful body sensation, of course, this isn't, uh, uh, this isn't an anti-pain medication commercial. Um, it's, it's recognizing, though, that the culture sometimes gets overly dependent or over, overly reliant on numbing out pain, getting rid of it. And we have a lot of different ways of doing that in this culture. You know, not just physical pain, but emotional pain too. And that when we begin to wake up and actually take a look at all the pursuits that we're all engaged in, you know, so often the distractions and the things that we're pursuing and the addictions and the attachments so much have to do often with this very deeply conditioned conviction or impulse to cling on to pleasure, to pursue pleasure, and to avoid pain. And that that creates the framework uh, for happiness. And most people would never admit that because it sounds too, not just yogis, but most people wouldn't even admit that. But if we look at where people are investing their energy, so often it's in that place. So often it's in that, in that pursuit of clinging to pleasure and the avoidance uh, uh, of pain. So, swimming upstream, walking on this path, 
is beginning to question that relationship to pleasure and pain. To begin to look at, the, first of all, the nature of pleasure. Let's take a look at the nature of pleasure. Um, look at it in a pretty non-attached way. Pleasure is subjective. Okay? I like chickpeas. You might not like chickpeas. Okay? I like tofu. You may hate tofu. I like brown rice. You might like white rice. Okay? So what brings me pleasure is subjective. But the pleasant experience arises under certain conditions. I taste that tofu. Okay. Pleasure arises out of that contact. And I experience it, and I enjoy it. And sometimes what I'll do is start grabbing for that next bite, you know, even before I'm done. You know, a little greed in that. Uh, but let's just say I don't do that. I just observe the pleasure. I experience that pleasure, and I can taste that tofu. And pretty soon I can't taste that tofu anymore. You know, it's gone. And that's its nature. You know, that's the nature of that pleasant experience. The nature of lunch is that it ends. It begins, it expresses itself in a certain way, and it disappears. <laughs> you know? And we have all sorts of associations and attachments and investments in that process. But that's its nature. You know, there's nothing, you, you, you actually can't keep lunch going. But <laughs> the cooks would get exhausted. There aren't enough of them. Uh, you get tired of eating. Uh, you get tired of sitting in the same dining room, even with the nice tables and all that. Uh, you'd still, you, you'd want out uh, pretty quickly, actually, I think. You'd probably be bored within a couple hours, um, maybe less. So its nature is to change. It's important to see that. It's important to see that. You know, that's not to devalue you know, pleasure. That's the other extreme, is that, well, it doesn't matter. You know, pleasure's impermanent, so who cares? Whether I eat tofu or whether I eat, I don't know, hamburgers. You know, who cares? It just doesn't matter. Okay, no. That's not wisdom, okay? P the nature of pleasure is it's pleasant, and its nature is to be enjoyed. In other words, when we're tasting something that is pleasing, let's enjoy it. Yeah. But to enjoy it, first of all, we have to be present. You know, many times I've had meals... I can remember uh, where, you know, something's preoccupying me, and I'm, I'm eating, and I'm not even tasting, you know, and I'm eating tofu, and I'm not even tasting it, you know, I'm just kind of gobbling it down, and then I find I'm full. Um, so you need to be present. One needs to be present, um, and practice allows us to do that. It allows us to enjoy the pleasant experiences that come along. But practice also allows us to see the passing or the changing of pleasure. You know? And so gradually, slowly, and I mean slowly sometimes, especially around certain kinds of pleasures that we're really attached to, slowly but surely, we begin to see that, yeah, I can enjoy the tofu, but I know it's going to end. And so I can relax and eat. And I don't have to be worried about my next meal. Or I don't have to worry about there's not going to be seconds, or whatever the mind state might be that I can just relax and enjoy things. I can take care of myself. I can eat enough. You know, but I also know the nature of that is it's not going to bring me lasting happiness. Lunch is not going to bring us lasting happiness, <laughs> no matter what they serve. And no matter <laughs> how good the cooks are, and they're very good. The food is excellent, in my opinion. Uh, but it definitely is not going to bring you peace. 
of mind, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult than that, a little bit more challenging. Um, so the nature of pleasure is that it changes. And we need to see that. You know, we need to see it very closely. We need to see it on very deep levels. Because as we begin to see it, we begin to taste freedom. We begin to take, taste some space, some inner space in the mind. Because all of a sudden, our, our world, you know, our capacity for experiencing the here and now is not limited in this, such, in this incredibly narrow way of having to have pleasure every moment. You know, all of a sudden, we begin to see that, wait a second, you know, when I learn to relax, enjoy things, and let them go, develop some equanimity around the pleasure, not cling to it so much, lo and behold, the mind begins to relax and unwind and settle much more naturally, much more deeply into whatever's next, whatever's happening in the here and now. And there's much less suffering. Our world becomes so much bigger. What's possible becomes much bigger. Same thing with painful experiences. You know, we don't necessarily cling to painful experiences, but we don't like them. You know, we kind of wish we weren't subject to pain. Um, but again, as we begin to pay attention uh, to our experience, uh, you know, in this kind of open-hearted way, um, one thing we can't avoid and one thing we begin to discover and wake up to is that there's quite a bit of pain in life. You know, and, and I know I don't have to, what do they call preaching to the choir here. I know you know that there's some pain in there, around there and out here in this world. Uh, so. We're already there. We already understand that there's quite a bit of pain. But our relationship to it is very conditioned. And it's often conditioned with aversion. When we encounter suffering, oftentimes there's aversion. Uh, when we uncover, uncover or, or see an unpleasant physical sensation or tension, there's that strong desire for that to go away, you know, for that to disappear. And oftentimes, I know for me, I spent years in some ways in my practice it wasn't always so clear either, um, where for me, when I first practiced, and it, there was a lot of physical pain, tremendous amount of physical pain, Jeez, endless physical pain uh, in this body. Um, and, you know, diligent meditator and lots of retreats and doing all that, but underneath some of my effort, you know, was this subtle feeling like, if only this pain would go away. I could finally, you know, discover or go deeper, you know. Um, there's a version in that. There's a version in that. There's a lot, lack of acceptance. And oftentimes there was a lack of wisdom in my relationship to pain. You know, because of that aversion, because of that agenda or that idea, oftentimes I was very limited in terms of how I would take care of my body. You know, like switch positions, forget it. You know, that would be the last thing I would ever do is switch positions or move. You know, even move, no matter how painful it got, I was determined, you know, no matter what, no matter what was thrown at me, uh, not to budge. Uh, there was a very strong 
energy of striving. And underneath that striving, there was a lot of aversion. You know, there was definitely a lot of aversion to that pain. And so gradually and slowly, you know, waking up to that aversion, uh, I began to realize, well, maybe there's a wiser way and maybe a more compassionate way to relate to pain. And that's really what we want to learn here, not just around physical pain, but emotional pain. It's not just to endure. You know? it, it's really to develop an ability to meet the experience with mindfulness and open-hearted attention, those painful emotions or body pains. Cultivate a little bit of compassion you know, for that pain. You know, and for the suffering that comes out of that pain. Uh, instead of judging or identifying with that emotional pain or claiming it as me or mine, you know, see it in a, in a bigger picture. Have a little bit of compassion for that energy. And then apply discernment, wisdom. Maybe it's time to stand up. You know, maybe it's time to sit in a chair. Uh, maybe it's time to go for a bit of a walk if the mind is really sluggish and dull, and it's becoming a very painful, difficult uh, experience, you know, do some walking. You know, get outside. Uh, look at the forest. You know, reconnect. Rebalance. See, because what we want to do, what we want to cultivate, is a balanced relationship. The Buddha talked about the middle path. The middle path isn't um, indulging in pleasure, and it's not judging pleasure. You know, or punishing ourselves, or depriving ourselves of pleasure. It's a middle path. It's opening, you know, to the experience of pleasure without clinging to it. You know, applying discernment. You know, trying to discern uh, uh, what the nature of that pleasure is. Uh, what happens if we pursue that pleasure? What's the consequences of our actions? What effect does it have on our bodies? What effect does it have on our minds? What effect does it have on our hearts? But if we have all sorts of ideas about pleasure, either investing a lot of energy into it, clinging onto it, or a lot of self-judgments about our desires, judgments about experiencing pleasure or enjoying it, and sometimes there's there's some of that in us too, um, it gets in the way. You know, it gets in the way of developing more discernment. So both pleasure and pain are part of life. That's the point. And we don't have to suffer because of that. We don't have to suffer the, because we, are, we do experience pleasure and we do experience pain and they change. Instead, what we can learn to do, and this is what really goes to the heart of the practice, is we can learn from the experiences that we encounter um, so that we begin to understand the mechanism or the process of suffering. And the process that creates suffering for us with pleasure is the clinging part of it. It's not the pleasure itself. The suffering part of experiencing pain is not the pain, but it's the relationship of aversion to the pain. And that relationship is something that we can have some say over. See, that's that's what's liberating about Dharma, is that Dharma doesn't allow us to live a life full of pleasure at all moments or avoiding pain at all moments. We're, We're human beings living on this planet. And as long as we're human beings living in this relative world of changing conditions, um, we're going to be experiencing pleasure and we're also going to be experiencing pain. But, once again, 
how we relate to that will determine whether we suffer or not. And that's what we have some say over. And that's what we're cultivating here. As we develop greater patience with ourselves, as we greater... uh, cultivate uh, greater acceptance, an attitude of allowing, an attitude of metta or loving kindness, you know, qualities that develop gradually you know, as we practice them. Remember, as we practice them. They're not automatic sometimes, you know, but as we nurture and practice them, they develop and grow. And we're developing those kinds of intelligences, kind of intelligence that allows us to understand and see clearly what's going on within us, what is the nature of our suffering. And also, we discover liberation, the letting go of suffering, the freedom. Finally, I'd like to talk just a couple minutes about um, relaxation in practice, and then I'd like to end here. Um, you know, the practice that we're doing last couple of days, and that we'll continue to do at least another day. Um, this practice of shamatha, um, the development of calm and serenity. You know, this ability to focus the mind and steady the mind. And out of that, um, some of you may have already experienced at least a few moments of it anyways. And, and as we practice in a more steady way, um, you may experience it more. Just a, a certain sense of inner contentment you know, and, and even joy. Uh, believe it or not, even joy can arise um, you know, through this process of paying attention in a, in a sustained way, con- continually bringing the mind back to its primary object. And this serenity and calm is important to experience eventually, you know, along the path. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deep form of relaxation of the mind. The mind can experience a lot of joy, a lot of peace, you know, a lot of serenity, a lot of calm. And we get a sense of also just how powerful the mind can be. It's quite extraordinary how powerful this mind is. When we're preoccupied and lost in the thinking world, we're limited by those conditions. But when we train the mind to pay attention in a sustained way, the mind becomes extremely penetrating. It can explore very deeply this body-mind process. But another level of relaxation, which is we nurture this you know, calm. We build on this calm. You know, we build on this foundation that we're so diligently working on. And the kind of relaxation where practice then takes us, this path takes us further along the way, is that we develop a kind of relaxation that is built on faith and confidence. It's built on the, the ability to be more equanimous and more balanced, and more poised. And this sense that grows with practice, it's wonderful, this sense of empowerment, where we develop this capacity to meet the conditions in our life. 
whether they're easy or difficult. We meet these conditions in our life. And in the process of meeting them with greater equanimity, we discover that we can actually learn. Uh, We can make our way through and into that experience and discover a peace in the middle of any kind of condition that we're finding. It becomes unshakable, in a sense, this confidence, this sense that we're up to the task. We can meet life as it comes, you know, with balance, with the awareness that we have choices, where there's different possibilities of relating, where there's freedom. And so it's the relaxation of inner freedom uh, that we're nurturing in our practice. You know, through real perseverance, through earnest effort, in developing patience with the things that we meet. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.